Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 68 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending September 15, 2017, the Ugly Win Edition. Jay and I return for a wide-ranging discussion of some of the week's top compliance and ethics-related stories, including the following. We consider the Equifax data breach from the compliance perspective. We take a look at the interview in the FCPA blog by Julie DiMario of Philip Urofsky and his comments on enforcing the FCPA, DPAs, the pilot program, and the Yates memo. We look at a new scorecard put out by the BBC that Dick Casson reported on, and the amounts of money paid by the Brazilian construction company Odebrecht as bribes. I consider the intersection of Uber and Hell. We take a look at uh, the new kleptocracy app by the Mintz Group and how that ties through compliance convergence into sushi and money laundering, as reported by Sam Rubenfeld in the Wall Street Journal, Risk and Compliance Journal. In a special uh, part of this episode of This Week in FCPA, Matt Kelly joins us for an emergency rant and to announce the birth of the latest addition to the Clan Kelly, Calliope Kelly. We take a look at and tip our uh, collective baseball hats to the Cleveland Indians, who have set the uh, American League mark for consecutive wins and are now going on for the MLB record. And then we take a look at one of the ugliest wins in modern recent history in pro football, the Texans win over the Bengals on Thursday night football. I detail uh, this week's podcast offerings in this month's One Month to More Effective Compliance Programs, which is focusing on innovations in your compliance program. And Jay previews his weekend report about storytelling and compliance. All this and more on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, along with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors. And we are here for This Week in FCPA, Episode 68, The Ugly Win Edition. So, Jay, we had a a very interesting uh, week in the world of compliance, ethics, the FCPA. Uh, We have a special uh, guest on this week's episode. So with that, why don't we just jump right into it? Great. Uh, welcome, everybody. And uh, we're going to talk about everyone's favorite uh, credit score reporting company, Equifax, and what they've been uh, dealing with over the past couple weeks. Right. So uh, if you've been living in a cave or someplace outside the purview of the Internet, newspapers, radio, television, and every other form of communication, and you do not use uh, any paper currency uh, or have any credit cards, this does not apply to you. Uh, for everyone else, however, um, uh, in probably the worst cybersecurity attack uh, to date, Equifax was hacked uh, about six months ago, and um, they stole, the criminal stole uh, approximately 143 million persons' information of credit history, social security numbers, bank accounts, all of the stuff that makes the world go round uh, other than diamonds. And um, it really affects really everyone in the USJ. And um, so the fallout will probably be for years to come. Unfortunately for Equifax, they handled it 
um, about as poorly as they could have done, and they have continued to do so. So they didn't timely report it or disclose it. They, um, the two top CEO, t- two top officers in the company, including the CEO, actually sold stock immediately after uh, they became aware of the uh, intrusion, uh, raising the specter of insider trading uh, to dump stock for a, um, a loss, and the stock has really taken a dive. They uh, were, um, it took them about six months to even know they were um, hacked. And then their response has just been uh, abysmal. First, they tried to charge people for um, protection uh, that they offered uh, after, um, after the uh, announcement was made around your uh, uh, information and your credit score. Uh, there was such a public uproar over that. Uh, they then uh, s- said that they would make it free for some unknown period of time. But, of course, to do, to do this, uh, to have this service, you had to re-enter all of the information that they had already lost. So uh, really no public comment from Equifax. Uh, apparently just a, uh, not routine software problem, but uh, certainly one that have been, would have been uh, easily remedied had they uh, actually been looking. Um, but what I wanted to do was raise it in the context. So, so it, it sounds like we got a little bit of uh, the DNC hack meets um, Wells Fargo, huh? Uh, times 10. Uh, Sorry to interrupt. But uh, no, no, that's why it's a conversation, not a monologue. Uh, but um, our friend Ben DiPietro over at the, the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal had a couple of good articles this week that I really appreciated because they focused on the compliance part. And since we're um, here to talk about all things compliance and ethics related, I thought we'd highlight his articles rather than the articles that give a general background and, his- and sense of the, of the scandal. Uh, in one article, he talked about need for training uh, in the uh, cybersecurity world. And then um, he also talked about the risk management component because it was apparently through an open software source that the uh, hackers were able to find the weakness and exploit it. And it really brings home for me something else we're going to explore later, a little bit later in the episode, Jay, which is the convergence of various forms of compliance uh, in uh, one officer or one function within a corporation. And companies need to start thinking about uh, how you're going to get a handle of all, all of your compliance risk and, and not, um, get a handle on your risk and then put a compliance management strategy around it. So I think we're going to be, unfortunately, having to fall out from this for little, literally years to come. Uh, hopefully, uh, neither you nor I nor any of our listeners will have uh, credit cards open up in their name because of this breach, but uh, everything is unknown at this point. So next up, we had a really interesting piece from Julie DeMauro, um through the FCPA blog where she interviewed Philip Urofsky, a partner at Sherman and Sterling. And maybe why don't you take it from there, Jay? Thanks, Tom. Um, you know, basically, Julie led a discussion with Phil and they were talking about um, on the first part of it was the differences between um, a deferred prosecution agreement and a non-prosecution agreement. And um, basically, Yurofsky said that the same five goals are accomplished with either a DPA or an NPA. Uh, there's an admission of wrongdoing. There's a tolling of the statute of limitations, uh, cooperation and remediation of compliance programs a payment of some fine, 
and then a monitor is appointed, uh, is appointed. And Yurovsky believes that the public perception of a company that has been accused of violating the FCPA is such that fines might not even need to be that big as the public abhors bribery. So his feeling is, is that, um, you know, maybe there have been a lack of recent declinations. Some of that is just the course of clearing out um, older cases. But there's, uh, we've been assured by many people, and it's not in this article, but the people that you and I both talked to say that there is uh, enough stuff in the queue to keep us busy for uh, several years to come. Um, the other interesting part about this discussion was uh, Yurovsky mentioned that he sees that there's an inherent tension between the DOJ's pilot program and the department's Yates memo. And um, he believes that since individuals in business now have no incentive to come forward to disclose their part, that uh, this might be uh, making things a little bit harder to make cases. Uh, nonetheless, um, the ultimate feeling is that uh, the FCPA forces global companies to appreciate a level of risk proposed to, posed to their business, allocate resources accordingly, and ensure that internal controls are reasonably designed to counter illicit transactions such as unlawful payments. So I think the, uh, the end result is that um, we are in a bit of an adjustment period. And, um, you know, I think it's very interesting to look at that tension that he mentions between uh, the goals of the pilot program and the goals of the Yates memo. And ostensibly, when the Yates memo came out, it was nothing really new. We'd always been trying to uh, prosecute individuals, but I think it just, um, you know, became codified uh, now with the Yates memo. And um, that's my thoughts on it. Anything from your perspective? Yeah, I thought it was a, a very interesting piece by Julie. Um, certainly the parts you highlighted I thought were very significant, but there was a couple of other things that struck me, Jay. One was the, the tone, and it was um, that, hey, uh, you know, all you naysayers out there, all you people waving around saying the end of the world is nigh, uh, just chill out for a little bit. Take a chill pill. Um, things really are business as usual. Things um, are not going to change that much. It may be some adjustment, but we've always had adjustment. And the only thing constant in the world of FCPA enforcement is change. And so it really follows a period of, of certainly a, uh, a large number of cases from 2016. But in terms of the government's overall focus, he, uh, he speaks directly to that point where he talked about Jay Clayton, who in 2011 co-authored an article that said the FCPA put uh, U.S. companies at a disadvantage. Uh, now, Clayton has certainly uh, walked back this sentiment uh, today, but what Yurovsky's um, view of that was, you know, he's the chairman of the SEC, and the SEC's enforcement agenda is to bring cases, and it's going to continue to do so. And so the government is still uh, committed to FCPA enforcement. The other thing is that you, you hear from the Chamber of Commerce and that type of analysis is that the FCPA uh, really uh, hurts American business. And here Yurofsky points out a couple of different things. One is he picks up on the uh, Jay Clayton really walking back his earlier comments because we now have a true worldwide enforcement regime against anti-corruption or for corruption and bribery. You name the country, Brazil, United Kingdom, China, 
Germany, uh, Netherlands, uh, a large number of countries are engaging in uh, corruption and bribery, not only investigations, but enforcement actions against them. So uh, U.S. companies are not put at a disadvantage. But he also uh, directly answers the criticism that says that um, are foreign companies avoiding the U.S. capital markets because of the FCPA and the due diligence requirements? Uh, I mean, that's just horse hockey. Uh, the due diligence requirements don't come from the FCPA. They come from Sarbanes-Oxley. And uh, a company having to certify its financial records. Uh, and frankly, I don't think we want companies that aren't willing to certify their financial records. And then he touches on the other bugaboo that everyone always talks about, which is shareholder uh, derivative actions by the uh, very aggressive plaintiffs bar in this area. And um, those he points to those as really the two reasons. So, uh, and then if you overlay that on the, uh, think about Saudi Aramco, and they're going public, and uh, they've committed to, you know, uh, the, the prince or whoever is running the show, he wants to be in the top U.S., to top capital market in the world, which, of course, is the New York Stock Exchange. So, uh, he really answers directly some uh, ancillary criticisms of the FCPA, and that's really what led me, Jay, to, to see this, the overall tone of this is... Uh, Yes, it's a period of adjustment, and yes, we may be having some change, but um, don't get overly excited about it and uh, just carry on. Be calm. Be calm and carry on. So uh, with that, um, Dick Casson over at the FCPA blog had an article about um, a scorecard that the uh, BBC put together of the Odebrecht bribes uh, uh, that were paid out. Uh, now, this came from public information, so it's, it's not anything new, but it does collate or, or aggregate in one place the amount of bribes that Odebrecht paid or admitted paying and the uh, various enforcement actions, international enforcement actions that we saw in December of 2016. And it's from a uh, top of $349 million in Brazil down to a million in Mozambique and pretty much every, every amount in between. Um, so we've linked to this in the show notes, and if you do business in any of these countries with Odebrecht, it's something that uh, you probably want to take a uh, little bit closer look at. It's certainly, uh, I thought, valuable information and uh, interesting going forward. Um, Uber, our friends Uber, uh, they just... Uh, can, I, can I jump in with one more thing? There was... Um, that bbc.com article right and it's uh one part that got gave me a few chuckles was it says um odebrecht code names included dracula sauerkraut decrepit totally ugly and one politician whose wife was 40 years younger got the name viagra <laughs> well, I wish I hadn't started because that's the perfect segue into the, the next thing I wanted to raise, which is our good friends over at Uber. And um, they are in even more hot water for a, a special project codenamed Hell. And uh, I guess the first thing it's I would... It's got to be a good thing, right? It's got to be a named good. Hell. It's got to be a good thing. And uh, does a code name for a software program or indeed a corporate project identify nefarious or even criminal intent um certainly is there, is it true a rose uh, is a rose by any other name if your uh project name is hell does that speak to the employee's experience or what you're trying to do to your competitors i don't know because this was a program that was aimed at uh creating fake 
customer accounts at their competitor Lyft so that they could track uh, Lyft systems uh, and um, Lyft's customers or, or the Lyft system and the believing prospective customers were seeking rides around the city. And this allowed Uber to see what uh, Lyft drivers were nearby, what prices they were paying, and it gave data uh, on the drivers. Um, what it made me think is how much data do they have on us riders? Because I know you and I are big Uber users. So uh, a couple of points for the compliance practitioner. If you're rolling out your next initiative, do not name it hell. Um, <laughs> and if you're you know, inclined to go for a more PG route, don't even name it Hades or maybe not even Satan. But, uh, uh, you know, Uber just can't keep from tripping over itself. And, and I suppose you have to ask, Jay, at some point, what is the um, what's the culture there? Is the culture there? We've seen illegal programs, uh, certainly. Um, programs that were alleged to be illegal. They're under criminal investigation. We've seen civil actions brought against the company. And how, uh, what kind of enterprise were they running? Um, is uh, there a, a report today that the, uh, they may have a large investor come in, but uh, you really have to wonder uh, how much else is there. Um, so there you go. Uh, we... And oftentimes I hear about organizations, whether they're financial or very crucial to infrastructure, as them being too big to fail. And I'm wondering, I mean, does too big to fail even apply to something like, you know, a large tech company that has, uh, you know, so drastically infiltrated the uh, the habits of the global and American culture. So it's like, I think the way we're looking at this, there's at least four separate cases that are going on with this company. And um, if they all go to its conclusion and have some kind of uh, resolution, you know, number one, where there will there still be a company there? Or number two, to your point that you're talking about private equity, um, could they end up being absorbed by a competitor and just really, you know, take over that core kernel of who they are because there's some good there, but there seems to be a lot of uh, other negative, uh, you know, non-competitive, uh, anti-competitive things that they do from a, a business perspective. Well, Jay, we've got a first for this week in FCPA. We have an emergency rant uh, requested by Matt Kelly. It looks like Matt is with us. Matt, uh, calling in from the Cape as a disgruntled listener. Uh, what has got you needing to rant today? Hello, gentlemen. Thank you for tolerating my uh, my outbursts here. So it is, of course, an honor to be on this week in FCPA, but um, I wanted to vent a little bit today. This is, what, Friday afternoon about Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein who made headlines today with a speech he gave yesterday, where afterwards, in Q&A comments, uh, he said that uh, the Justice Department might be revisiting the guidelines around corporate prosecutions, and immediately people are jumping on this, saying, oh my God, we're going to revisit everything, the Yates memo, what's going to happen, and everyone's running around all in a tizzy. Um, I have some rants about that, that whole thing, um, number one, if you actually read what Rod Rosenstein said, which I did, and the video of it is out on C-SPAN somewhere, he said that 
The policy of the Yates memo is under review, and I anticipate there may be some change on the policy in the future. That is, in my humble estimation, not news. That is obvious. And so, number one, big deal. He did not actually say anything about what may be forthcoming, if anything at all. Uh, number two, uh, Rod Rosenstein gave this comments uh, at the Heritage Foundation, which is a right-wing and conservative activist group these days. And so, really... What was a Republican deputy AG going to say to a bunch of people at the Heritage Foundation? Was he actually going to stand up and say an Obama policy? Eh, you know what? It's good. We're keeping the H memo. No, absolutely not. This was an Obama policy. He is a Republican in the Trump administration. So therefore, we are going to say that we will revisit it because that is what the Trump administration says about all Obama policies, especially to their core political constituencies, which the Heritage Foundation most certainly is. Um, but aside from the fact that he didn't really say anything that you couldn't guess already and that frankly wasn't news because we already knew it was coming in one form or another sooner or later, we've all known this since January 20th. Aside from all of that, here's my other point I just want to call out is even if Rod Rosenstein announces some revisitation of the Yates memo and some changes for compliance and ethics officers, and if you guys think I'm wrong, I would love to hear this. So what? Like, what is Rosenstein going to say that is going to make ethics and compliance programs less important? Um, either he's going to say corporate prosecutions and a corporate accountability will increase again. Well, that's heresy in the Republican world. So that's not going to happen. Or we're going to hold corporation uh, cor individuals more accountable, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm sure people like Elizabeth Warren would love to see more corporate accountability or more individual executives in corporations held more accountable. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with this. A couple of weeks ago, we just talked about the chicken shit club and how that book chronicled our retreat away from holding uh, individuals accountable for corporate misconduct. What if we're going to do all that? Hey, great, man. Everybody loves it. But you're still going to need a compliance program to cooperate with Justice Department people in all of this so they can get the individual bad guys. My, my final rant, and then I swear I'm done, and I'll go back to my, my life and let you guys get on with this, is that the only way Rod Rosenstein would say something that would actually be a shot across the bow and jolt compliance officers is if he were going to say something like corporate compliance programs are now less important. We're not going to care how effective your compliance programs are. We're not going to ask for companies to cooperate. We're not going to want you to self-report. We're not going to want any of this. We're not going to care. And I just don't see him doing that. I don't see him saying it. I don't think it sells politically. It certainly is a gift to people who say Trump is soft on corporate crime. Um, we certainly think that, you know, certainly that would not help his job as law enforcement. And I don't think he wants it. I think in deep in his heart of hearts, Rod Rosenstein likes being a prosecutor and therefore still wants as much ammunition as he can get to wage cases effectively. Um, and, you know, let's call a spade a spade with every week with every drip of new news on the Russia investigation, you also have to wonder, when are we going to wake up and Jeff Sessions or Rod Rosenstein may not have a job? And then we start this all over again with a new deputy AG or a new attorney general. I just, I don't see how anything that Rod Rosenstein said yesterday was number one, terribly newsworthy, two, terribly surprising given who he is and his political situation, or three, is really going to be that relevant 
to the day-to-day life of compliance officers. Show me how what he says means that compliance will become less important or compliance officers will have less to do in their jobs and have to start worrying about the unemployment line. I don't see it. That's my rant. It is an honor to be able to do that with you guys on this week in FCPA, but that's all I got for you. Well, Matt, actually, you have one other thing that uh, hopefully you can announce. Um, Any new additions? Uh, Well, for those who are interested in um, the Radical Compliance Empire, thank you. Uh, My wife and I did have a daughter, Calliope, earlier this week, who is doing well. And uh, we will begin her compliance training, I am sure, as soon as she is hale and healthy and here keeping us up at two in the morning. Very good. Congratulations. Does she have a nickname? Yeah. Uh, no, she does not. We are not quite sure about that. Although, actually, our son, who is three, has taken to calling her Buttercup. That may or may not stick throughout her life. I'm not sure. She probably won't like it, but she can take that up with our, her older brother years from now. Well, the West Coast will nominate going to Cali. See if that'll stick. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, Matt, thank you and congratulations. congratulations Matt. Thank you very much, guys. Well, Jay, um, really interesting comments from Matt on the emergency rant, but that almost ties into the comments of uh, Philip Urofsky, where he raised the uh, question of the dynamic tension between the Yates Memo and the pilot program. So, uh, you know, it also ties into your conclusions or at least observations that we may be going through a period of, of adjustment and or clarification. So I don't find I did go back uh, after reading kind of the blaring headlines that Matt re- read this morning uh, that jolted both of us. And, and I went back and read the uh, I watched the video and his comments, I thought, were um, thoughtful. Um, Rosenstein's comments were thoughtful and that uh, it may be uh, appropriate for an adjustment or other other clarifications from the Department of Justice. So um, as we've heard before from many in this administration, uh, it appears uh, with all the alarm that headline generated that there is no there, there. Well, we do have a there, there, though, with a new game uh, and a new app and a new fun way for you to figure out if you are a kleptocrat. What is that? Uh, This is uh, a great, uh, I would say, marketing tool and gamification tool that's come out from the the Mintz group. And they've uh, taken, uh, I guess, data points from real-life investigations that they've done about kleptocrats. So that would be government employees who have legally enriched themselves. And they've put this into an app that uh, was available as of Monday at the uh, Apple Store. And it's pretty cool. So you get to decide how much you want to extort somebody for, uh, which way you will take the payment, and then how you will go about hiding the payment, whether you're buying real estate here in Southern California or maybe opening a sushi bar in Mexico City. And based on all that, the moves that you make are going to be countered by the investigator. So it sounds like... um, uh, a really fun game. It also sounds like a, a great way to really, um, you know, gamification. We've been hearing about it for the past several years at many of the conferences. And it's really a way to um, kind of, you know, have infotainment that you're educating people, 
but they also can get addicted to the game and like it. So I, I think it's a wonderful move. Uh, I'm not an Apple person, Tom. Have you tried it yet? And what have you been successful at stealing and hiding? So uh, I haven't tried it yet. Um, I think uh, the gamification stage, I may actually have uh, evolved past that. Uh, but uh, I didn't realize it was not available for you Samsung users. So uh, based upon uh, your lack of uh, technological uh, innovation and evolution, I may actually have to take a step and uh, download this and check it out. So perhaps we can report on that on a later, uh, later edition of This Week in FCPA. Jay, uh, I was a particularly appreciative of your reference to uh, uh, kleptography uh, and sushi because uh, the last article I wanted to highlight was an article by uh, Sam Rubenfeld over at the uh, also at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, and Sam talked about some increased regulations around uh, money laundering that ensnared a um, sushi restaurant, and it's uh, uh, some new FinCEN or Department of uh, Treasury regulation, uh, regulations uh, regarding sanctions, and the the key thing for the compliance practitioner Jay is that. Um, you, it's back to this compliance convergence. Uh, obviously, uh, anti-corruption and anti-bribery uh, compliance is something that you and I de- deal with day in and day out. And we talked about uh, cybersecurity compliance. Uh, we, uh, we haven't hit on export control compliance in this episode, but that's obviously one type of compliance. But anti-money laundering compliance. Uh, banks and financial institutions have struggled and uh, uh, been challenged with this for some time. But this is really moving more into non-financial traditional commercial establishments. And uh, we had some uh, pretty big real estate issues come up in the earlier part of the year. Uh, But uh, nefarious organizations such as drug cartels are laundering money through the variety of uh, uh, really straight traditional um, uh, commercial operations. And companies need to be aware of who uh, who's bringing in large amounts of money, whether it be a customer, whether it be an investor, whether it be a partner, whether it be some, someone else. And if someone's buying a lot of your product and they don't appear to be within your industry, uh, that may be raise a red flag. Uh, several years ago, we had a case where mugged Mexican drug cartels were actually laundering money by buying teddy bears in the United States, shipping those back. So you can wash money anyway. Uh, and through a restaurant, the sushi restaurant referenced in Sam's article or the teddy bears, which was referenced in an LA Times article, it really doesn't matter. So the compliance professional who's focused on corruption and bribery may need to uh, uh, expand his remit to take a look at money laundering and have that kind of controls put in place in your corporation. But certainly you need to, uh, to assess your risks and uh, move forward on that basis. So, uh, Jay, we Great. had – so let's. Go ahead. I was going to say there's a couple sports items that I know uh, we wanted to get to, and we're getting towards the uh, half of the hour. But um, I think you wrote a great piece this week about when you want to speak about a winning streak. And then uh, you also wanted to talk about one of the most uh, ugly wins uh, in Houston history. Um, so uh, a big shout out, tip of the baseball cap and everything else to the Cleveland Indians winning streak at now at 22. Uh, I had been wanting to write about it, but I was afraid that uh, I might transmit the old Sports Illustrated jinx to them, Uh, but I didn't. They're still winning as of the recording of this podcast, so let's give the Indians a shout out. Um, As an old-time American leaguer, I know you may do that reluctantly, and as a new new American leaguer... 
the sons of Francona. Terry brought the first World Series ever with Beantown, and he will always be loved in Boston. All right. So uh, those pesky chicken wings, you know, that's uh, that was his downfall. But um, <laughs> anyway, uh, kudos to the uh, to the Cleveland Indians. Uh, I hope you keep winning right up to the time you play the Astros in the playoffs. Uh, and Thursday night football. Uh, the opening week was last week. Uh, we will not revisit the beatdown, thumping, whooping, and general destruction of the New England Patriots, which occurred on that first one. And we won't talk about that. And I promise not to bring up the fact that Patriots lost uh, again. But the ratings were down about a third. Well, at least they had the Patriots. And uh, this second game was the Houston Texans and the Cincinnati Bengals. And it had to have been not one of the worst wins in Texan franchise history, but one of the worst football games ever, Jay. Uh, One touchdown between two teams, uh, 290 yards total offense by uh, Cincinnati. And uh, I can't remember what Houston's total offense was, but uh, Houston scored basically one touchdown on one play uh, where uh, Deshaun Deshaun Watson had a 50-yard run in. And that's what... um, uh, was the difference in the game. Um, just uh, pathetic. It's about the only way to uh, size up the entire game, the performance by both teams. Um, and that's what we're getting in Thursday Night Football. And I don't know how many more of those the uh, NFL Network can sustain. I was uh, unfortunately not at home, so I was at uh, on the road and couldn't uh, – uh, get the NFL Network. It turns out that that was a propitious non-event for me. So, any thoughts <laughs> from your end? No, I was. Uh, I tried to get excited over the last five minutes, and there was just not a comeback happening. And um, you know, there for a while, people have always talked about the the dilution of talent. There's 32 teams. Are there 32 quarterbacks and 32 number one? running backs who can do it. So, you know, this is just more of what's going to come into the future Uh, is I believe next season, we're going to lose two preseason games. So they're going to be added to the regular schedule. And, uh, you know, um, you've got all the CTE stuff. So maybe we are starting to see the, uh, the downturn in professional football. Uh, only time will tell we're less than a week and a half in. So let's, uh, Still give it a little bit time to see what happens. You know, several commentators, uh, Bill Simmons is, Simmons is the one I listen to the most. He, he really brought up some interesting points around that, Jay. And, and the way he framed it was um, before this year, he would have been very excited in July and August around preseason, knowing that professional football was on the coming. Uh, you know, if not buying season tickets, would have been planning to attend a game or two. And he just had no enthusiasm during the preseason, is not going to attend any of the games in L.A., whether it be uh, the L.A. Rams, or I guess you're in L.A., or, or the Chargers. I don't know if you're planning to attend. I don't mean to demean your teams if you are. but uh, and, and I felt that as well. I just, uh, you know, a huge Cowboy fan, and it's like, oh, they started. Okay, uh, maybe I'll watch, maybe I won't. But when, uh, when you have all of the issues that you raised and you put on a poor product, uh, that's when you start to see a downturn in market. And if anybody proved that, it was the movie industry this summer. Uh, oh, 
Um, Jay, I continue my one-month podcast series on one month to a more effective compliance program. Uh, This month, it's on innovations for your compliance program. Over the past week, I've looked at uh, such topics as embracing Agile in your compliance program, design thinking in compliance, how Kaizen can improve your compliance program, disruption in compliance, and super forecasting to better risk management. Uh, This month, my sponsor is Oversight Systems. It's available on the FCPA Compliance Report, iTunes, Libsyn, YouTube, and JD Supra. So if you're interested in innovation and compliance, uh, this is the series and the month for you. Uh, I wanted to ask, uh, will we have a weekend report? And if so, could you give us a little uh, sneak preview? Well, I've been thinking a lot about storytelling as of late, and I read a pretty good um, article uh, from the Harvard Business Review that I'm going to take a look at. And, um, you know, r- realistically, storytelling is something that's very important when you're conducting business. And um, if you're able to take the benefit of what you do or the service you sell, and you're able to uh, put that within a story and more importantly, within a heroic story, that seems to resonate uh, with clients and people that you want to help. So I want to try to think about um, the stories we tell uh, from an ethics and compliance perspective and how they resonate with the uh, ethics and compliance community. So uh, I should be working on that on the airplane tomorrow as I'm uh, going back east to the Berkshires for an offsite. So that's what I'm thinking about. And uh, we'll see if it actually turns out by the end of the weekend. Well, it certainly sounds like a great topic. It's something that uh, I thought about as well, and it's absolutely critical in your, in certainly as a business leader. But I think it's equally, if not more important, in the compliance uh, profession that we be able to tell a good story and tell a story that uh, not only resonates with our customers who are our employees, uh, but also allows them to buy into the. Uh, the overall compliance and ethics message. So uh, with your uh, skill set as a screenwriter, I guess you're a recovering screenwriter. Um, hopefully you can really craft a, a, a really uh, a persuasive story about why storytelling is so important. So Jay, with that, uh, you want to take us home this week? I'd love to. So on behalf of uh, Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, We'd like to thank you for spending your time with us this weekend and taking a look at the week in FCPA that was for the week ending September 15th, 2007. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast. It would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only weekly wrap-up of all things FCPA and compliance-related in the podcast world. Also, if you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I'd like to thank you again for listening to this episode. I hope you'll join us again next week. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.